I told I told Camel this. I forgot who I was talking to. It was, I think it was a fellow earlier this week, and I said I was talking about nutrition, and th this person who I can't remember said, oh, God, that's such a boring topic. Um, it might be a boring topic, but it is actually very important, and there's some basic things that we really can impact our patients, so it's an important topic, as are most of them. Uh, what I'm going to do today is primarily cover the SCCM Aspen Guidelines on Nutritional Support in Critically Ill Patients. Um, and specifically, we're going to talk about defining malnutrition and nutritional screening. Can everybody hear me okay? Good. Um, I'll talk about enteral, enteral and parenteral nutrition. I'll talk about adjunctive therapies and uh, a few patient-specific populations. Uh, I will cover some studies, maybe about six or eight studies, but it's going to be very kind of abstract reader's digest version. And I'm going to talk about a couple topics intermittently that have, aren't in the guidelines but I think are important. Uh, the current guidelines that came out, in, um, they're actually published in, in uh, JPEN in, in February of this year, and then it's critical care medicine, and I think in March of this year. Um, they actually started working on these in 2012, so I spent about three years putting them together. And what, they, what the committee did was they reviewed previous guidelines, mostly guidelines from 2009, but also looked back as far as 2004. They come out about every five or six years. And there's been a lot of criticism of these guidelines because it was primarily experts that got together in you know, a nice place, Las Vegas or Hawaii, and kind of said, here's, here's what you should do, with not much evidence. And there's really a small group of people in critical care that are kind of nutrition is their area of expertise, and most of them are surgeons. But they really tried to be more scientific and actually really focused on reviewing evidence, which is starting to accumulate now. And they actually looked at 750 randomized trials. And uh, once the committee actually made their recommendations, they, they sent these to be reviewed by three other committees. One was primarily people from SCCM, other was people from American Society of Parental Nutrition, and then the Canadian Nutrition Society. After they reviewed these and kind of gave their blessing to these guidelines, they were submitted to both Society of Critical Care Medicine and to, and to JPEN. And they went through the same peer review any other, other article would have. So they've been reviewed pretty, pretty good. Uh, and because of that, uh, there's a lot of weak evidence, um, and it's mostly weak evidence, quite honestly, and it's not uncommon in guidelines. There is some, uh, they, they made based recommendations on the quality of evidence as strong, uh, moderate, and these are recommendations you really should do, and then weak or very weak. And that, a lot of the data is really weak or very weak, but there is at least data. And then there's a lot of topics where there's not very good data, or just observational, where they mention, but their answer is we have no recommendation. In the text of, of both versions of these guidelines, there's, there's a, um, they, they admit that it's an expert consensus, and these are guidelines that you need clinical judgment. So they're just guidelines, doesn't mean you have to do this. Um, we'll start with malnutrition. I'm just going to read verbatim. It's an acute, subacute, or chronic state of nutrition in which a combination of varying degrees of overnutrition or undernutrition with or without inflammatory activity have led to a change in body composition and diminished function. So you can be actually getting too many calories or too much protein or too much carbohydrate, and that's actually malnutrition also, just like undernutrition. For the purposes of the rest of this talk, and most of the time when you read about malnutrition, they're specifically talking about undernutrition. But just to know, uh, overnutrition is actually, is actually another form of malnutrition. Uh, so right from the Aspen uh, website, uh, malnutrition is defined as two of the following, insufficient energy intake, weight loss, loss of muscle mass, loss of subcutaneous fat, Fluid accumulation that may mask your weight loss, diminished functional status of measured by hand grip. So any one of those two, you're considered malnourished. 
Why is malnutrition important? Well, about a third of the patients in the hospital are malnourished. If you're malnourished, you have a three times longer hospital length of stay. Surgical patients that are malnourished have four times increased risk of pressure ulcers and greater mortality. And there's other data like this to, to, um, that are, are bad effects of malnutrition. And uh, patients that are malnourished, we basically put them in three categories. Uh, Starvation-related, um, chronic disease, which is a, where the patients are inflamed or where they're markedly inflamed, acute, acute malnutrition, which is what we see in our ICUs. Um, patients, and this is in the Aspen, Aspen uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine guidelines. Patients should, with, on their hospital admission, within 24 to 48 hours, should be screened for malnutrition. It's also mandated by the Joint Commission and CMS. So if you're not doing this, you're, your institution may not get paid. Why is this important? Because if you identify malnutrition, patients that are malnourished and do something about it or at risk of malnourished, you can affect, improve their outcomes. And I have that in a couple slides. What's recommended in the guidelines is to use something, but they specifically want the NRS 2000 or a Nutrix score. And the reason these are used, and I have a slide covering it, but they basically include the severity of illness. Uh, markers that are often used, albumin, prealbumin, transferrin, procalcitonin, et cetera, really have little value. Probably the only one that has much merit now is, is interleukin-6. Uh, uh, some of them are used for research purposes, but you really shouldn't be using these in your assessment of nutrition. I don't know if you can see all this, but these, these are just examples of some of the uh, nutrition scoring systems. Correct me if I'm wrong, we have a lot of nutrition people. Thank you for coming. Uh, at, at this institution, we use the malnutrition scoring tool, MST, and we also use the um, subjective global assessment, SGA, right? That's what they use. Um, and this is, this is uh, a picture of the MST. Basically, you're, 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 you're defining, are they, are they losing weight? How much have they lost? Um, what's, their, what's their intake? So it's pretty simple information that gives you, a, that really defines patients. And this is a sub subjective global assessment, basically looking at history, some physical things. Uh, the Nutrix score, which is used a lot in re research now, and it's actually what uh, SCCM recommends, uh, this includes uh, that type of information, but also Apache scores and SOFA scores. And you can, there's two versions, one using IL-6 and the other not. And, and if you use a Nutrix score, essentially if, you're, if your score is five or less, you're considered uh, low nutritional risk. And if it's, if it's six, or, six or above, you're high nutritional risk. And we'll talk about this later. And then the NRS uh, basically uh, looks at your BMI, have you lost weight? And then, and then the, and if the answer is yes to those, you go to the second part of the test and they're basically looking at your um, severity of illness, the type, type of reason you're in the hospital. Uh, you don't need to memorize that, but just know that nutritional screening needs to be done. Uh, there's emerging tools that are being written about, you, actually dietitian-directed physical examinations. We're looking at, at, at uh, muscle mass, or looking at skin folds. There's more and more data using CT to assess muscle size and also using ultrasound. So there's going to be more and more stuff coming out like that as things are standardized. So. If, if patients are malnourished and we, and we come up with a plan, can it help patients? There's actually several papers uh, suggesting this, and this is one that uh, was actually referenced in the SCCM guidelines, uh, published in Nutrition a few years ago. And these were patients actually at the other hospital in, in Baltimore, Hopkins, and two uh, hospitals in China, uh, roughly 600 patients in each center. And the, the patients that were at Hopkins were um, 
Roughly one-third were MICU patients, one-third were surgical patients, which included surgical ICU, include, included non-ICU patients, IMC patients, and then on, on one of the cancer floors. And what they looked at is half the patients got recommendations by a nutritionist and they, were, and they were implemented, the other half did not. And what they saw was less complications in the patients that, um, where they followed the nutritionist recommendations, less nosocomial infections, and decreased length of stay. These were patients with a Nutrix score of five or, five or above. So if it, was five, if it was less than five, there was no benefit from, the, from the nutritional recommendations. So five and above in a Nutrix score, patients are considered at nutritional risk. And there's other papers kind of with the same results. So what's a recommendation as far as nutrition in patients in the hospital? If you're unable to tolerate oral diet, within 24 to 48 hours, you should be started on enteral nutrition if you're hemodynamically stable and can tolerate it, and your Nutrix score is five or above. So if your Nutrix score is less than five, there's actually no benefit of starting enteral nutrition. Um, why is enteral nutrition better? Well, it supports the function of the gut. Um, there's a lot of data show decreased risk of infection. There's data show improved outcomes and decreased length of stay. Uh, again, in the, in the SCCM guidelines, you do not have to have bowel sounds. You do not have to have bowel movements to start enteral nutrition. There's no data to that say that that's required. Um, this is from the, the JPEN article, just looking at early enteral nutrition versus delayed enteral nutrition, and, and essentially all the studies show the benefits of patients that get fed earlier. Earlier was defined as, as within the first few days, and it got back to 48 hours. Now it's 24 to 48 hours. Um, and this is mortality, same, same data. I don't know if you can see all that, but... Um, so how do we dose our nutrition and define our goals for our patients? The JPEN SCCM guidelines actually rec recommend indirect calorimetry, which basically you look at oxygen consumption and CO2 production. And these are actually taken off the internet, some of the metabolic carts that can be used. You can actually do it with a ventilator. Uh, the, one, the one on the top right it actually uh, kind of looks like a space helmet. There's systems that look very similar to a BiPAP setup. Uh, the reality is this is not very practical at the bedside. There's a number of nutrition formulas. The Harris-Benedict is the most common. And they say if you're not going to do calorimetry, do, it, do, a, do a formula. And they actually work pretty well. And I think this is what we generally do in our hospital, 25 to 30 kilocals per kg per day. That's ideal body weight. No, it's not ideal body weight. It's just their weight. And, um, but it also depends on the weight of the patient. Um, so obese patients, you're actually rec rec um, recommended to do give a little less, and patients that are that are underweight, you actually caloric goal should be a little more. However, protein, uh, the one thing that uh, never needs to be or almost never needs to be decreased in patients, especially in the ICU, is protein. Uh, generally speaking, patients should get between 1.2 and 2.5 uh, grams per kilogram ideal body weight per day. Uh, some patients higher protein, such as obese patients and a few patient populations I'm going to mention a little later. Um, so in normal people, people in this room, we should get about 0.75 uh, grams of protein per kg, uh, our ideal body weight a day. Our sick patients in the ICU should get at least one, 1.5, maybe higher, closer to two. Dialysis patients a little greater than one. Um, burn patients and trauma patients probably closer to two. And then one of my favorite topics, patients on CRT should get 2.5 uh, grams uh, 
per kilogram ideal body weight per day when you're at CRT, because CRT removes amino acids, especially convective clearances. Um, there's more and more data, sh uh, mostly observational, but there have been some studies showing, uh, although calories are important, proteins proteins more important. Um, patients that do not get their protein requirements tend to do worse in the ICU. It's been shown in um, ICU patients in general, but specifically more in, in patients on mechanical ventilation. So they tolerate less calories, but not not um, uh, uh, less protein. And this was actually published after the guidelines came out, uh, came out uh, I think in August of this year, published in the, in the Blue Journal. And they had uh, uh, almost 900 patients in, in ICUs, many of them mechanical ventilation, but not all. They were randomized to uh, early feeding with full, full calories right from the get-go and full protein versus uh, decreased calories, which are about 30, which are about 50, 30 to 50 percent of what the their protein goals should or calorie goals, but they were given full protein, and they divided them between their Nutrix score of zero to four and five to nine, and there was actually no difference in outcomes in anything. Uh, so this is another example of the importance of protein, maybe more than anything. Um, this really isn't covered in the guidelines, but it's a topic to know about, and 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 we will come to back to a little later, is the concept of re refeeding syndrome, which basically happens. Uh, when you deliver carbohydrates to a malnourished patient, and ins insulin causes a shift in electrolytes into the cell, so you become hypophosphatemic, hypokalemic, hypomagnesemic, and you get the complications of that. Muscle weakness, edema, arrhythmias is very common, hemolysis, and, and a number of patients in the ICU are at risk of refeeding syndrome. So we should always think about that and look at our nutritionist advice uh, about refeeding syndrome. Um, how do you manage patients with refeeding syndrome? First of all, you identify them, and usually it's pretty easy to identify these patients. You want to follow their electrolytes very closely. Uh, you want to replete them and replete them often. Uh, it's recommended to get thiamine, preferably IV, multivitamin, and, and, and folate. Uh, calories should be given much, much less and much slower, usually 10 to 20 uh, kilocals per kg per day, roughly 1,000 cal calories initially for the first few days. However, protein, they should get full protein requirements from, from early on, patients with refeeding syndrome. Um, parental and enteral nutrition both have pros and cons. We'll start with enteral nutrition since that's what we should be using first whenever possible with our patients. The advantages of protection gut integrity, decreased infection risk. Um, you do have to have functioning gut to use enteral nutrition. It is more difficult to control calories and um, you do need access, so you need a feeding tube, a peg tube, or whatever, so you do need some kind of access to the gut. Parental nutrition, um, you do not need GI function. Uh, you can kind of dial in your caloric needs for your patients. Um, there is a, a significantly increased infection risk. does not support gut integrity, uh, cholecystase, especially in the long term. You do have to have access for parental nutrition. Uh, you need to monitor patients much closely for electrolyte abnormalities, and it's significantly more expensive. That's a big thing. It's much more expensive. Um, again, this was taken from the, from the guidelines, this table, looking at enteral nutrition and parental nutrition um, and infectious complications. And uh, all the data shows favors enteral nutrition. Um, now, it should be noted that uh, some of these studies were in the mid to late 80s, uh, up to 2011, and a lot of things in critical care have changed, and we're going to come back to that. Uh, where, where, the patient, where should the patient get their feeding tube? Um, 
there's a, a lot of push for post-pyloric fe feeding in, in some patient populations may be right, but um, there is decreased risk of aspiration and pneumonia in patients that get post-pyloric feeding, but it's not a lot. And uh, there are problems with post-pyloric feeding in terms of when you get the tube in, how you get the tube in. Uh, so there's mixed data on patients actually meeting their caloric and protein goals when they get post-pyloric feeding, because sometimes there can be significant delays in getting these tubes. And um, depending how it's placed, uh, uh, there could be complications. There's no data to show any mortality difference, at least in the studies that have been published on this. So the recommendation is actually to initiate in the stomach, divert lower in the GI tract if the patient's intolerant or if the patient's deemed high risk. Like in the cardiac surgical ICU where I used to work, lung transplant patients, for obvious reasons, you did not want aspiration, so they tended to use post-pyloric a lot, and that seems reasonable. Um, what formulas should you use? There's a whole bunch of formulas out there. It gets kind of complicated. Um, we'll make it easy for everyone in here. Is generally speaking, use a stand, standard polymetric, polymeric formula. Uh, you can evaluate for immunomodulating formula. Rarely, at least initially, do you need to do specific formulas. Even even a diabetic, pulmonary, renal, hepatic formulas. They certain patients uh, are needed, but in general, general speaking, if you know nothing, just pick something and feed them, and at least you're do, at least you're doing good there. Um, the dose uh, we we talked a little bit about um, again. Uh, and it's in the recommendations. So patients at low nutritional risk, there's no benefit of enteral nutrition during their first week. Um, patients, and I'll cover the study in a few slides, uh, patients that are, have a, acute lung injury or ARDS, uh, there's no benefit of full feeds over trophic feeds if they're on mechanical ventilation for 72 hours. Uh, the recommendation by Aspen and SCCM is to, adva is to advance your uh, to goal with, within 24 to 48 hours and attempt to provide greater than 80% of your calories in your patient. And we'll cover that, I think, in a slide or two also. Adjunctive uh, therapy, uh, soluble fiber. It should be considered routine in non-surgical patients. It does help with diarrhea, so patients with diarrhea that don't have contraindications should go on soluble fiber. It's contraindicated for patients on pressors. And the reasons, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't completely grasp, but, but the idea is with patients on pressors, they're, they're getting less perfusion in their gut, and, and, and fiber seems to cause stress on the gut. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know how much it's actually been studied, if it's just a lab thing or a theoretical thing. Maybe someone back there later can help us with that one. At, at University of Maryland, the product we use for fiber is called Banatrol. And uh, protein. Again, protein is very important. You should supplement protein that reach your protein goals. That's why the vast majority of our patients are actually, in addition to their tube feeds, you get a bag that has their protein. Protein we use at the University of Maryland is ProSource. Uh, probiotics, there's, there's no data that I know of that shows any harm in using probiotics. Uh, most patient populations hasn't been shown to be better. However, liver transplant, trauma, and pancre pancreatic surgery have all shown decreased VAP, decreased C. diff, and decreased diarrhea. So the recommendation is it's no harm and these specific patient populations you can use, or actually should use. Antioxidants, um, there's been a number studied, uh, very mixed data on it. They do not have an actual recommendation other than the fact that they're safe. Arginine and fish oil, um, there's been data to show specifically in elective head and neck cancer surgery patients they do better and also trauma. 
uh, specifically uh, decreased infection and decreased uh, length of stay. There's also no data to show harm in these. So in any patient population, they're deemed safe. Uh, glutamine, in theory, uh, helps maintain gut integrity. Uh, it has been shown to be some benefit in, in burn patients. Uh, no other patient population I'm aware of um, is considered safe in both enteral and parenteral nutrition. Uh, so how do we monitor patients getting enteral nutrition and why? Uh, this first point was actually published in Clinical Nutrition 2007, but, and it was observational, but it, there's been several studies with similar, similar results. Basically, critically ill patients that don't get about 80% of their caloric goals um, have a significantly higher mortality than patients that aren't getting them. Um, and the recommendation SCSAM is you should monitor for tolerance and minimize MPO. So patients getting MPO because they're going to have a procedure a day and a half from now and that really interferes with the patient getting their calories. So try to minimize MPO whatever possible. Feeding protocols, there's much better data, much, a great, great amount of data showing that patients with feeding protocols tend to get more calories. There is data to show that continuous infusions, patients get better calories. And the big one, which is a new, a new recommendation, should not check gastric residual volumes. They also note that gastric residual volumes are a big tradition, and it's going to be pretty hard to change at every institution. So if you can't get your people in your ICU to, to stop checking them, you should use a gastric residual volume of 500. And we should not interrupt our feeds for, for diarrhea. So what do we know about gastric residual volumes? There's been a lot of small studies basically showing no benefit. There's been a lot of studies actually show if you want to clog your feeding tube up, check gastric residual volumes. Um, but we, have, we actually have some randomized trials now. And the first one, the Regain study, I can't believe it's already six years, my God, um, was, in, was in Spain, 28 ICUs, 300 patients, and they divided them up in residual volumes of 500 mLs and 250. And they showed no difference in anything, except for the patients where, the, where they used 250, they got a lot less calories and protein. And then this other a uh, study uh, was published in JAMA 2013. I think these were German ICUs. It was 900 patients where they used a gastric residual volume at 250 versus no gastric residual volume. And they showed no difference except for the patients where they checked gastric residual volumes, they got less calories. Uh, this actually is not mentioned in the guidelines, but it's something I know there's some discussion with the nutrition about uh, using volume-based feeding. And, and basically the concept is um, you're trying to, to make sure, you know, patients have a 24-hour goal and you're, and you're trying to make sure they meet that goal however, however they get it. So if there's interruption in their feeding, you come back and you may increase the rate of their feeds or you may bolus them. There's a couple different protocols out there to feed me. And then the PEP up, I think the PEP up is the one there's been discussion about bringing here. Uh, they, all these protocols show increased delivery of calories and especially protein and to my knowledge, there's been no, uh, no um, downsides in terms of this. So it's something that's, that's getting out there to increase, increase caloric delivery. Um, monitoring and delivering enteral nutrition. You should assess your patients for aspiration and reduce the risk for aspiration. So post-pyloric uh, enteral access should be placed in patients deemed at high risk of aspiration. You should use promotility agents liberally and then our, our basic care uh, head of the bed should be elevated and should use chlorhexidine mouthwash. Um, can everybody read that? 
I don't have to read that for everybody, do I? Um, their perennial nutrition um, has gotten a bad rap, and, for, and now it's not called TPN anymore. It's perennial nutrition. Um, yeah, he's he's um, he writes on this a lot, and is not a fan of it. But but things um, perennial nutrition has changed. Perennial nutrition in 1985 and today is a little different, um, and it's who and it's who's getting it too. So rec switching to perennial nutrition, patients at low nutritional risk, you should hold perennial nutrition for first seven days following admission. So you shouldn't start it on somebody that's well-nourished well for at least seven days. Patients that are high nutritional risk, severely malnourished, they're unable to get enteral nutrition, you should start it right away. You should not wait seven days for those patients. Patients that are in the middle, you should try everything if possible to basically get them to get enteral nutrition. And if the period of seven to 10 days, they're not getting at least 60% of their energy and protein requirements, then you should switch to enteral nutrition. And when you start perennial nutrition, especially you know, severely malnourished patients, it's very reasonable because of refeeding syndrome to, to, to give them hypocaloric feeds. Um, we're doing much better with perennial nutrition. And, and a couple of reasons why I think it's gotten a bad rap is um, uh, in the 80s and 90s, there, this was before we did, did a lot of our line bundles and taking care of lines. Uh, we also were um, not using tight glucose control. Uh, we weren't using uh, protocols to prevent pneumonia, uh, you know, chlorhexidine, et cetera. And um, perennial nutrition uh, used to be made at a lot of centers at a pharmacy where you may be making it once or twice a year. Even at the University of Maryland where we use a fair bit of it, the perennial nutrition actually sent out to a compounding pharmacy where essentially the person making that, that's all they do. So the complications of, of electrolyte abnormalities and that are, are, are significantly less. So we're doing a better job of perennial nutrition and the data is kind of showing that. Um, this, this first uh, trial was published in 2011. I call it the CSER trial, not the ECMO CSER trial, but CSER's a lead author. It's actually Greek Vandenberg was part of it. And these were seven ICUs in Europe and they were started on parenteral nutrition early versus late. Um, uh, and early was started within 48 hours and, and late was at eight days. Um, the patients that uh, got to perennial nutrition late had less infections, less cholestasis, less vent time, less renal replacement therapy, and significant lower costs. There was no mortality difference in these patients. Um, this, this patient population included a mix of patients that were, were malnourished and were not malnourished. So that's something, a sticking point. Um, but this is one of the arguments of, of going later. Now, Goring Dong had a study uh, just after this one that came out in JAMA where they looked at um, early perennial nutrition um, <clears throat> versus enteral nutrition in uh, 1,300 patients in Australia and New Zealand. Two-thirds of these patients were surgical patients. And it was, it was actually usual care versus early perennial nutrition, which was, which was actually less than two days. And they showed, showed no difference in outcomes or infections and there was less muscle wasting and less fat loss. These patients were, the majority of these were deemed high, high nutritional risk. So they're a little bit different patient population. One, they're surgical and these, these patients were more malnourished. And then the Harvey study, uh, 2,400 patients in the, in the UK, uh, comparing early parenteral nutrition versus early enteral nutrition. This is, they were followed just for just five days. And um, there was actually no difference in any outcomes. No difference in vent days, mortality of glucose control. So there's more and more data slipping in that parental nutrition may not be quite as bad 
that said, we, should, we still should go use internal nutrition whenever possible. Um, so glucose management, this is, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but there's a discrepancy. The aspirin guidelines, if you look, they recommend, same as our nice sugars, keeping sugars between 140 and 180, and Society of Critical Care Medicine has 150 to 180. Why that 10, 10 point difference, I do not know. If you look at complications in glucose management, they really increase when, when sugars are maintained above 200. And there is some data that just benefits of insulin infusion in terms of anti-inflammatory properties. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But the guidelines, Aspen 140 to 180, SCCM 150 to 180. Uh, so kind of a summary of what we talked about. And these are really the, the new changes in, in nutrition recommendations, probably fair game for boards, at least in the, in the future. Um, you should assess patients on admission and intensive care unit for nutritional risk, calculate their energy and protein needs and try to get it to them. Initiate enteral nutrition within 24 to 48 hours on the onset of critical illness and, and, and increase your goals within the first week. Take steps to reduce aspiration and improve tolerance to gastric feeding, including pronotility agents, continuous infusions, chlorhexidine, elevate the head, and divert to lower in the GI tract, and at least in selected patient populations. Implement enteral feeding protocols specific to your institution to promote delivery. Do not check gastric residuals. Start perennial nutrition early when it's not feasible that, or, um, actually start perennial nutrition early when enteral nutrition is not feasible or sufficient high risk or, or poorly malnourished patients. Um, so this is the Eden study. Uh, it was published in JAMA and it was, a subs it was patients in the ARSNET um, who uh, there was a thousand patients randomized to uh, either trophic folds or full for full feeds for for six days. These were all mechanically ventilated patients, and they showed no difference in any outcomes, other than patients that got full feed had higher volume volume status based on their eyes and O's, more insulin, and they had more episodes of vomiting. Surgical subsets, I've covered a lot of this. Um, arginine and fish oil are recommended in trauma patients. Uh, there's data showing decreased length of stay and decreased infections. Patients with an open abdomen should start enteral nutrition early. You should provide 15 to 30 grams extra protein per liter exudate. Burn patients, uh, 1.5 to 2 grams of protein daily, and you should initiate internal nutrition very early, four to six hours, and there's data supporting that. Uh, Post-operative patients uh, generally the tradition is to, to, to start clears first. There's actually no data to support that. Uh, actually, the Aspen guidelines recommend start, when you, once you start feeding these patients, start a regular diet. Um, use perennial nutrition after day five if enteral nutrition is not feasible, so it's recommended to do a little earlier. Consider probiotics. Okay, sepsis. The guidelines actually say um, you start enteral nutrition 24 to 48 hours after a patient's hemodynamically stable. Hemodynamically stable means off pressors, or your significantly decreased depressors. Parental nutrition should be avoided during the first week, regardless of caloric needs. Don't give parental nutrition to septic patients the first week. It's reasonable to start trophic feeds to increase your goal over the first week, and 1.2 to 2 grams of protein per kg per day. Immune mod modulating patients may be beneficial, arginine safe, it's kind of mixed data, but there's no harm of these. Uh, pancreatitis, there's no data to support probiotics, although there's no harm. Um, you should delay parenteral nutrition if they're malnourished. If they're, if they're malnourished, you could start early. Uh, most cases of mild pancreatitis, you should keep them on a PO bland diet. Severe cases, you should use enteral nutrition. Uh, there's 
no really strong data supporting a, a small bowel feeding in these patients. Uh, ileus, uh, just some background information, just, just the idea of not eating can cause, can cause an ileus because you're not releasing hormones that, that stimulate the gut. Uh, there is data that patients with, with uh, ileus and enteral, trophic enteral nutrition actually have better outcomes. Uh, there is data that show that uh, enteral nutrition can decrease postoperative ileus. Uh, the recommendation, Aspen and SCSM guideline, is, is either oral or enteral nutrition with patients. So you should not hold enteral nutrition for an ileus unless it's severe. If it is severe and, and, and nutrition isn't possible for the first seven days, you should consider parenteral nutrition early. Uh, bariatric surgery, this is really just a recommendation. It's weak evidence. Um, uh, this is patients who've had bariatric surgery and are in your ICU. So they had it before and now they're sick for some other reason and they're in your ICU. You should consider supplement of thiamine prior to dextose or, or, or other nutrition. You should consider evaluating for deficiencies, calcium, thiamine, B12, uh, and vitamins. Uh, end of life, this is, this is an important topic and they, they have a pretty big section on this. Parental nutrition and enteral nutrition are medical therapies. So it's not... It's, it's a therapy. Holding uh, artificial nutrition and hydration actually can be palliative. Feeding, feeding a patient that's at the end of their life, it can cause secretions, you have to put a feeding tube in the patient, uh, constipation, diarrhea. So these can actually, actually feeding patients can actually make things more comfortable. Society of Critical Care Medicine, American Society of Parental Enteral Nutrition, American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Care Medicine, all have very strong uh, statements that are very, very similar basically say you're not obligated to feed these patients. Um, the, the recommendation, SCCM JPEN guideline, actually says if you have a terminal Ill illness, per persistent vegetative state, advanced dementia, uh, nutrition is not obligatory. They also recommend that it needs to be individualized because physicians, families all have different goals. So you really need to cater it, but you're not obligated to feed these patients. And it, there's no data that it helps them. Uh, getting back to hemodynamic instability, I mentioned it before, but, you, but the guidelines actually say enteral nutrition should be withheld um, until the patient's fully resuscitated and are stable. Um, they do say that you can consider using enteral nutrition with caution in patients going and escalating decreases of vasopressor dose, and the, and the argument is potentially contributes to bowel ischemia. There's been a couple small papers actually saying that um, Patients on low doses of vasopressors and also mechanical ventilation of vasopressors do just fine, at least with trophic feeds. University of Virginia is big on feeding patients. They actually have a fiber-free, low-osmo diet, and they've been doing it for a number of years and have a couple small, small case series. But there's a study going on right now in Europe. It's a randomized trial, Nutria trial, where they're actually doing early enteral nutrition in hemodynamically unstable patients. So maybe in the next couple of years, we'll have more data on that. Um, I'm not going to read this whole slide. It actually could be several slides, but the point is uh, medications can do a whole bunch of things to our patients. They're getting enteral nutrition, diarrhea, constipation. Absorption can be increased, decreased. There's a number of medicines that actually bind to, to feeding tubes. Uh, some therapies, your caloric needs are decreased. Some, some medications actually have lipids and, and, and supply calories. Uh, so the point of this slide is actually Talk to your nutritionist, they're on rounds, they're outstanding. Thank you for coming, there's a whole bunch here. And talk to your pharmacist, because they, uh, there's just too much for all of us to know in the ICU, and they may have some valuable information. So seek their guidance. 
um, therapeutic hypothermia in interim nutrition. This is not in the SCCM guidelines at all. Many centers, patients that are getting hypothermia, I know that it's, it's, it's an evolving topic, but nonetheless, many centers, their policies are to not feed these patients. I think in the MICU, Mike, generally you don't feed these patients. Is that right, or is it, you don't? Yeah, and then that, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no data to say that that's wrong, but that's, this is why it's interesting, because it's kind of a, there's a different take on it. Um, I think in the cardiac surgical ICU, generally they don't either, maybe, maybe trophic feeds. The neuro ICU where I used to work, we actually routinely would at least trophically feed them, and some of my colleagues, I, that was my practice, some of my colleagues would actually do full feeds, and this was just with, a, with a gastric tubes, so it's not post-pylorically. The pros to, to feeding is, is the infection prevention, and hypothermic patients are at definitely increased risk of infection. Patients, even, then, even if they're hypothermic, need energy to some degree. Some of the cons are uh, metabolizing food generates free radicals, and that's one of the reasons we're making people hypothermic, generates heat. Um, you have decreased uh, caloric goals, and depending on uh, how much they're getting, they may get hyp uh, hyperglycemic. There are a couple small papers on pediatric patients, very small case series, and neonates showing that's actually tolerated pretty well and they've extrapolated that it might be beneficial, but it's not good data. And until a couple months ago, there was nothing in adults, so I got all excited. So I'm actually working with a couple of residents looking at patients in the neuro ICU that have been fed while on hypothermia. So we're looking at that data now, and hopefully we'll have it soon. But just last month, uh, this came out in, in JPEN, the group in, um, uh, Philadelphia, their neuro ICU, basically small study. They had six patients in therapeutic hypothermia, six patients using normal thermia, so they're they're keeping them no fever. And they're all fed by gastric tube, just for three days. They calculated their energy needs by formula and also did in, uh, did calorimetry on them. And what they found is the formulas overestimated their caloric needs by about a third, which seems reasonable, makes sense. The three three of the patients in the hypothermia group had. Gastric residual volume is greater than 250, big deal. One ileus, one VAP. Uh, the normal thermia group, there was one VAP. So they concluded that endronal feeding is least feasible in, in hypothermic patients. But more than that, we don't have any data. Oh, got done with plenty of time. So, so basically, the, the bullet points that you probably should know is we sh patients that come in the ICU, we need to assess them for nutritional needs and, and, and find out what their caloric and protein needs are. You should feed the patients early you feed them with enteral nutrition over parenteral nutrition. Avoid episodes MPO, making people MPO procedures if they vomit, et cetera. Uh, protocols tend to help very well. Generally, a gastric um, access is fine. If that's not tolerated, you can consider a small bowel. High-risk patients may be small bowel right away. Uh, standard formulas, that's good enough for now. And then talk to your nutritionist about um, modifying and select patients. Uh, severely malnourished patients, um, well-nourished well, well patients, you should hold parental nutrition for seven days. If they're, they're severely malnourished, you should probably start earlier rather than later. Um, obese patients, low calories, but they still have to get their protein, and all patients, give them their protein, because um, that's more, definitely more important than the calories, at least in 2016. I think that's it. Uh, clinical scenarios. I was wondering if you could address, you know, because we deal with it, the discussion that is being brought up, um, the situation of 
uh, neuromuscular blockade, uh, situation of growing, and <coughs> the rate at which one can increase the, uh, the feet. You know, if you start low, go up, or can you go right off the bat, so some issues that yeah, I don't think any of those are worked out, worked out completely, but, but uh, paralytics, um, the nerves that innervate your gut are the same nerves that innervate your heart, so a paralytic does not stop that. Paralytics, sedated, paral paralyzed patient, probably, not probably, it's actually been shown, has less caloric needs than somebody that's awake moving around. So that's kind of the easy answer on that one. Um, proning. Um, I, I, you know, I haven't looked at the data on that. Um, okay. What's that? Data. Okay. It's, that's what I would have guessed. Thank you, Dr. Her, for bailing me out um, again. <laughs> um, are you are you are you using for your prone patients? Are you doing post pyloric or the gut? Post pyloric. Yeah, I, I was. What I was going to say was, um, to me, it seems reasonable to, to do post pyloric. But I can, I can. It's been a few years now. I'm getting older. I remember at LSU though, we used to do a lot of proning like they do here. We we primarily fed in the gut, and I can't think of any problems. But that was just anecdotal experience. Yeah, sure. In trauma, we occasionally feed gastrically well proned and we Yeah, um, and then there was one last one that escapes me. To accelerate or to start. There, there's actually, to my, if my memory serves me right, there's not much data showing that even though we do it and even though it's in the recommendations that slowly titrating feeds is any better or, or worse. The, the downside or the upside of titrating is, is again, since we're really finding out that protein is more important, if you're giving protein and you're, and you're, and you're kind of skimping them on the calories is probably no big deal. But anecdotally, um, I, know, I know in the neuro ICU specifically, Dr. Bajadia's practice style is you start them right away. And there is data to show that people started right away on full feeds get more calories. And I, I'm not aware of any increased complications in that. There's something. some old papers that prove that you can feed right away, especially with a small bowel. Uh, there's, no, there's never any reason to lamp up a small bowel. And I don't know if you're saying, I missed something, but I don't know if you're saying about volumetric feeding. We, we, we have one slide, it might have been before you got in. Everybody knows that we're going that direction in our ICU. Um, we're coming to the theater in you very soon. Um, and we're in the midst of now doing a uh, offline or they can call when the nurses complain about how to do it. But we'd be going to all the 100% volumetric feeding in our ICU. And that's months, months, six months. <laughs> No, nothing happens in a month here. <laughs> yes, sir. Can I just say, I, I oh. think I saw something on arginine, and I thought I saw you had something that's not, not, not contradictory, but I think arginine and transplant is really a bad thing. Is that correct? Sepsis, sepsis. And I don't know if I said that, but that's the one, no arginine and sepsis. Yeah. That's what I was also going to ask about. In, you brought up 
a slide with, with fish oil and, and given you know, the, omega, the omega trial, which we were a site for, whether that, you know, how you were going to interpret those findings, which were at best negative and, and possibly were actually able to harm. Um, I am I'm aware of that trial. There's also been other trials that small ones that show benefit and some that don't. So I think that's why the recommendation is it's probably okay. Um, but they, um, it's actually not even a recommendation. But if you want to use it, it's okay. But I am aware of that trial. Right. Yes, sir. And the other thing for the certain patients, they get like azotemia from, like especially they are on homosteroid and they are getting, you know, protein. They get just selective elevation in their view. And, and certain patients just, you know, they have good urine output, get good kidney function. Even you look at the urine creatinine, cumulative, I mean, they have good GFR. But their view in the 70s, the 80s, I don't know if we have any strategies trying to minimize that besides, you know, decreasing the nutrition itself, the quantity of making the well, that's where the nitrogen balance study comes in very handy because you can correlate the dietary protein intake with the help of your dietitian to the losses that you're having and see what is the prevailing effect. Thank, thanks, everyone.